Yeah, there was theoretically a path to valuable public health data layer here, but how are you going to convince people to use it? The business emerged from this idea that, well, let's make it valuable to a person and to their physician, to that team, at the same time be accumulating information about what's happening across the community that feeds back onto that relationship, uh, but teaches us hopefully ways in which we can address some of the, the population risk factors that are otherwise causing symptoms or causing the development of asthma in the first place. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. From his early days as a jazz drummer, to his pursuit of epidemiology in New Mexico, Alaska, and India, to his current role as founder and CEO of Propeller Health, David Van Sickle has always been an improviser at heart. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa, yes, our, uh, our guest today found his way to his current role via a remarkably circuitous route, which was pretty far from where he started out, um, as we'll get to. So my question for you is, when you were in college, I really, I'm really interested in this. I don't yep, know the answer. When I you were, uh, I hope so. <laughs> when you were in college, what did you think you were going to do with your life? I had an absolute concrete plan to become a politi- political journalist. I had been inspired by all the president's men when I was younger. And I was hell-bent. And so I got a uh, joint degree in politica, political science and journalism as an undergrad. And I went to and got a master's in political science. And by the end of it all, I ended up uh, doing marketing in the tech world. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> At least that sounds more interesting. It reminded me there was a guy I knew when I was an undergraduate. who was just like core pre-med. And then like he was practicing for his med school interviews. And I was like, okay, well, what would you do if you couldn't be a doctor? And he goes, well, in that case, I would have been a doctor. <laughs> Sounds like you. <laughs> and it was, uh, and it, but it was really well. What was funny is he was actually being really authentic. Like it was just he didn't really have. It was just really interesting. So um, via this introduction, we are delighted to welcome David Van Sickle to the show today. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Uh, thanks for having me. So we've met a number of health tech entrepreneurs who are attracted to technology at a young age. You know, oh, I bought my first TRS eighty at wherever. Um, but it sounds like you were really drawn. Um, uh, that what you were really drawn to from a young age, from whether high school or college, was drumming, inspired nice. by folks like uh, Art Blakey. Um, can you tell us about that? Yes, exactly right. I spent most of my high school and uh, a lot of my college in, in bands and thinking uh, out, of, out of those years that I was going to make a living as a, as a jazz drummer. Um, it, was, uh, it remains a passion. It, it's uh, still something that I, that I practice regularly, but I you know, fortunately realized that I, I had a other interests, and I could uh, I could follow a path uh, to anthropology and then into digital health. So, but but you were really serious about this. I mean, so when you, you went to so um, you went to college at UCSB, and then when you graduated, you it sounds like you hung out in the Bay Area in somehow in an all female punk band. Well, not all female, obviously, if he was in it. Thank you. Very clever. Um, so <laughs> all female punk band, with the exception of uh, of David, uh, called Sisters of Confusion. What was that about? Well, they were confused about whether David was female. Obviously, I was. <laughs> I was taking any opportunity I could to play to play music and to try to build a career there um, across different genres uh, with you know with with different folks. Um, it was uh, you know a, a time in my life when I was working on uh, jazz drumming, but also you know then trying to to play as much as I could and get as much exposure and experience and uh, you know and build a network. Um, I, I think I just wasn't that good, <laughs> and 
you know, I was also uh, drawn to the academic side um, of, of the courses that I was taking um, and auditing there at, at Berkeley. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, that, that sort of attracted me and presented a, a viable path out of, uh, out of driving around the Bay Area, setting up drum sets uh, all the time. So, so what, was the, what was the thing in medical anthropology that, that really turned you on? Like what was the, the, the lesson or the day or the book or the whatever that really got to you? And by the way, go Bears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is like all we're hearing about. Lisa all we ever talked to is Harvard people. Today we've gotten to talk to a bunch of Berkeley people. It's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually was lucky enough to audit a course by uh, this, this fellow, Charles Leslie, who's one of really the, the founding scientists in, in medical anthropology and had a, had a remarkable career describing and, and researching um, Asian medical systems. And it was one of the most... Uh, well-taught, thoughtful, and provocative classes I'd, I'd ever been to. Um, so I came out of that. How did you wind up in it? How did you wind up in it? Like, how, like, you're, like you're cruising the course catalog, or, you, or they had to offer the course in the late afternoon, or like, what was yeah. that? Yeah. No, the... I studied undergrad uh, anthropology in Santa Barbara, so I was already attuned to that, to what was, you know, what was available in that, in that discipline, in that field. Uh, so I was looking for ways to essentially finish up my coursework, and, um, and I ended up uh, you know, seeing his uh, his offering there, he was just a visiting faculty, so it was a chance to to catch someone who was in the Bay Area but wasn't there regularly at uh, at Berkeley. Uh, it was just a, a a turning point for me because I ended up approaching him and uh, and getting a recommendation that was really the reason I ended up in graduate school. So. And then when you were in grad school in Tucson, right, you found yourself working with um, uh, someone named Ann Wright, as I recall, who's an anthropologist by training and is doing these perspective studies of, of allergy and asthma. Is that how you got in, um, you, you began your lifelong interest in, um, in, in allergy and asthma? Yeah, I, I, got to, I got to graduate school in Tucson, uh, the University of Arizona, and the, the medical anthropology program there. Um, I fairly quickly realized that I wasn't going to be cut out for or wasn't really inspired and uh, by, by the idea of reproducing anthropology as a career. Um, so uh, I looked around for ways in which I could, I could support myself and, and learn and obviously build research um, uh, you know, experience. And, and Anne Wright happened to be running um, uh, uh, one of the first really uh, and largest prospective studies of the development of atopy and, and allergy and asthma in kids. Um, and she was an anthropologist by training uh, and you know, I, I ended up um, essentially working for her and the team that was putting that uh, that study on, and um, uh, you know, very quickly kind of recognizing that what was mixed up in in uh, in asthma and, and its development were all kinds of cultural things that I'd that I'd studied in you know in, in graduate school and uh, and before that, so diet, lifestyle, behavior, environment, and so on. So it presented this really interesting. So funny, I think of anthropology as more historical in nature, looking backwards, but it sounds like you were thinking about it looking forwards. Yeah, exactly. Well, just thinking about it as, um, you know, from, uh, from the, development of, the development of asthma and then its care and treatment, what was going on with, um, you know, with the, the lifestyle, the environment exposures? You know, this is the time when people were starting to come up with ideas about the hygiene hypothesis or, in other words, you know, what kinds of exposures were were um, affecting the development of the the you know the uh, immune system towards the towards the expression of asthma and so it seemed like this really interesting nexus of a lot of uh, you know cultural variables and environmental variables that 
that an anthropologist could really dig into. And you really pursued that in uh, studying asthma in a range of distinctive populations, right? The Navajo in New Mexico and in Eskimos, right? How, how did all that happen? Yeah, so, so Anne's an anthropologist by training, uh, and she, but, you know, ends up becoming this, uh, this uh, you know, fair, fairly uh, legend in, in asthma epi, uh, but, you know, still has in her heart kind of her, her own research among Native Americans and, and in the field and so on. So she and her peers get uh, essentially some supplements to that to the big grant, the NIH grant that was running that that prospective study that would allow them to send teams, uh, you know, multidisciplinary teams out to different populations to to explore, you know, the the phenomenon of asthma in those populations. And so the first place I went was uh, was the Navajo reservation, and I spent um, the better part of uh, a year or so on the Navajo reservation, uh, or right out right outside of it, essentially working. Uh, you know, with families and trying to understand, um, you know, how they were managing uh, chronic respiratory disease in general. Were they using, uh, you know, traditional medicines? Were they using uh, some combination of that and, and allopathic drugs? How were they seeking care? What did they think was, was causing it? So it was this really interesting uh, dive into, uh, you know, a particular community and how they viewed and wanted to, uh, you know, to try to, to um uh, to address asthma in their in their families and community. And what was it about this particular ailment that fascinated you so much? Oh, we just don't have. We just um, just when we start thinking that we have ideas about um, why the prevalence has been increasing for for decades, uh, you know, it will do something strange. It will plateau or decrease. Um, and so there's just so much mixed up in um, the theories that we have about uh, about why it emerges in individuals versus why the, the, the risk uh, changes across populations as a whole. That's, that's uh, you know, at the heart of what it means to, to be healthy and to take care of people, um, you know, as a physician. And uh, so it was just a, this incredible uh, and complicated problem that, um, you know, presented, uh, like, new ways for us to think about, um, about the disease. So if you could look at it, in different in different families in different communities, could you learn something about what was happening that you wouldn't be able to see, um, you know, otherwise? Could anthropology contribute something new to the to the epi? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's it's pretty obvious to me anyway, being the non-doctor that I am, that there's as much oh, of this right, tied up exactly. in environmental well, science and, and as there is in medical science, and yet those two of, rarely meet. Uh, mixed and con- contradictory notions about the role of the environment versus emotion versus. Uh, rearing versus diet and lifestyle. Uh, so it was this, uh, it, it is, it remains kind of a, a very, a very interesting um, amalgam of all sorts of things we think about influencing health and the development of, um, you know, appropriate immune response and so on. I remember when I was back in the behavioral health world, we used to see, uh, well, in working directly in health, I used to see spikes on Friday nights and you know, children ending up in the emergency room with asthma attacks. And the theory was it was because that's when their parents were both home for the first time that week and they'd fight and the children would, you know, would have a stress reaction. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it was, you know, so interesting, those types of things. I mean, it really seems like, I guess, what the anthropology approach and particularly primes you for is a really more of an integrative approach to, uh, to, to, to health and disease. I mean, I remember in college, we were learning about it, not just for classic anthropology, like from Irvin DeVore, but also people like Arthur Kleinman and, um, uh, uh, you know, you know the, the notions of, um, of how do we, of, of 
of how to explain explanatory models for 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 illness and the, com- the complexity of those. So my it sounds like um you you studied um it, it in these populations and then including an experience in, in asthma where you were trying in, in India where you're trying to figure out why the rate of asthma was low and if, just to kind of summarize that it sounds like it was basically because. It, it wasn't that it actually the rate of the condition was low, but it was that the diagnostic terminology was 20 to 30 years kind of out of date. So people were having what we would call asthma, but they were just describing it using uh, different terms. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. India stood out to me because it had, I, I'd done some field work there on, on tobacco use, and it supposedly had one of the lowest rates of asthma in the world, which I thought being being there, uh, you know, at the time was, there was something wrong. And uh, so you know, I was able to show that it, there was this lag in diagnostic terminology uh, that essentially explained a lot of what was happening. It was also a case of where, uh, you know, it took it took a theory to make facts, so to speak, and so data coming from rural India that demonstrated sort of what, uh, you know, counter evidence to what was the prevailing theory uh, just wasn't published or didn't get the attention. It wasn't it wasn't explainable, kind of in, uh, you know, in the way we were thinking about what was what was happening at large with Epi in the the rural versus the urban areas of, of the low-income countries. So then it sounds like then you took your passion for being essentially a medical detective and then turned into your first official job, which as I understand was at the uh, CDC, on a service there studying the, uh, the impact of, uh, of hurricanes, where again you sort of focused on asthma data and were frustrated that it wasn't timely or specific enough. Can can you can you go into that? Yeah. Again, I, I knew I didn't want to go into to become an to become an anthropologist per se in a in a department of anthropology, um, and so I looked at what what other options were were available and ended up joining uh, this part of CDC that's called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. It's essentially a collection of, I guess, in my year, something like seventy or eighty uh, folks, most of them physicians or you know a handful of nurses and epidemiologists who are essentially doing disease detective or outbreak investigation work for for the agency. And I happened to be there um, during the time uh, when when Hurricane Katrina and uh, and Rita hit, and so ended up spending a lot of my time there on uh, you know hurricane related health effects and uh, and then did you know did some other investigations during that time. But uh, in terms of what I was able to to understand about asthma, I was really frustrated by, the way that um, pr- public health surveillance was essentially dominated by a top-down approach that was focused on, you know, just the most sentinel and severe events like emergency room visits and hospitalizations, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and wasn't able to be timely or objective enough uh, geographically that, you know, that could, uh, in, so that it could support, you know, uh, real applied uh, field work and efforts that might be preventative. And um, so, you know, we would wait around for essentially CSV files that would come years after the fact, and then that would uh, determine the kind of the kind of work we would do in um, in asthma. And that followed me around. That sort of lack of information uh, or timely information that could help us uh, think about what we could do to you know to mitigate or avert exposures or outcomes. So, David, we just you know went through a period, and here in the U.S., we've had three major hurricanes in a row. Yeah. Uh, what was the was it different this time? I mean, did we have we done? Have we, I know we're going to talk about propeller, and that was sort of could have been a tool, perhaps. But you know, did we? We don't. It's funny. We heard a lot in the news about you know the lack of uh, electricity, bad you know water, rebuilding all that. But you, you heard nothing about the public health issues 
related to asthma per se. Is that something that spikes in hurricanes? Um, well, I was I wasn't actually working on on asthma in those during those hurricanes. I was I was sent to uh, to investigate a, a cluster of carbon monoxide fatalities that we that we traced back to exposure to to portable generators and uh, you, you know ended up demonstrating that a lot of the a lot of the warnings and labels, for example, on generators were, were somewhat confusing in kind of the way they explained and uh, and cautioned people about carbon monoxide poisoning. So that results in changes to the labels and hopefully, you know, down the road uh, improvements in, in the way people behave around those things. Um, but you know, what I was doing there was essentially looking for outbreaks of communicable importance, you know, trying to set up emergency surveillance systems that would feed data back to CDC. So they could understand, you know, where and how to deploy resources and people and uh, DMAT teams and so on, right? We're trying to make sure nothing emerges that's, that's a real threat. I'm sure that happened in, the, in these hurricanes as well, but I'm obviously not nearly as close to it uh, now. So then, the, I mean, it sounds like you really did have this sort of very long interest in sort of, you know, epidemiology and understand, really getting a frontline perspective with the idea that frontline data can provide real insights that inform public health, right? I mean, that's sort of the theme. Yeah. Um, you wound up pursuing it through a Robert Wood Johnson Fellowship um, uh, in, in Madison, Wisconsin, where there's a very strong allergy group. Um, and so you were sort of, my understanding is you did that to focus on asthma surveillance, but your, your real goal was to apply technology. Now, it seems to me the most technology you've described is like a drum set so far. How do you want, <laughs> how, how do you, how did you wind up being like a digital health dude? I, I can tell you exactly how it happened. At, at the end of CDC, I was reflecting on kind of what I had, uh, you know, what I'd learned and what I'd contributed. I'd, I'd worked on a bunch of problems and, and really interesting ones and learned a lot, things that I hadn't expected I was going to be, uh, you know, I was going to be um, presented with during those time, that time there. Um, I, I was looking back and trying to understand when in history had we seen an epidemic of asthma occur and what did it look like in the literature and the historical data? So, uh, you know, you might be able to recognize it in, in the future. Um, and there was this, there's this really interesting case of, of an amazingly um, uh, kind of a vivid outbreak of asthma that occurred in, in Barcelona, Spain, when uh, a bunch of fatalities would occur regularly sort of over the case, over the course of a number of years. And a, a team of people got together and spent literally years trying to understand what was causing these people to to die and to have the hospital emergency rooms, you know, flooded with, uh, with asthma exacerbations. Um, and it turned out uh, when they finally uh, went out and interviewed people um, that it was the, the location where symptoms began when put on a map that demonstrated, the, uh, you know, that it was a point source outbreak and pointed their, their efforts and attention uh, to the harbor and these harbor silos where um, there had been not there, there hadn't been installed the appropriate filters, so soybeans, as they were unloaded or loaded uh, from ships in the harbor, were essentially releasing these big clouds of, of soybean dust. Now, it was, it was that idea sort of that, that, um, that led to this, this uh, you know, crazy project early uh, in my days in Wisconsin to put, um, to put electronics, essentially, into an inhaler we have. Uh, you know, something that people are carrying around and using at a time and place when they have, have symptoms. And I thought, oh, if you could monitor that passively and understand where, when, and, you know, who is using albuterol, a, a medicine people take to relieve symptoms. It's like a rescue inhaler, right? Yeah, a rescue inhaler. You'd have this real-time map that, um, you know, it took the folks in Barcelona like eight years to build. And, uh, and then you would have this back door, this Achilles heel of asthma that would teach you 
uh, you know, how to approach it differently from a public health angle. So it's like total broad, like, like the story itself is like Burton Roucher's stuff. And the example is sort of at least the popular understanding of like the Broad Street Pump, right? Exactly. It's a... Uh, it's really classical epidemiology, you know, sort of or at least idealized version of it. And in here you are trying to implement. Well, I'm, you know, my reaction to it is like, wow, here's actually a company started that was a problem looking for technology to solve it as opposed to technology exactly. looking for a problem. You know, it's sort of. An <laughs> we, we, Dave, we don't know what to do with you. We, yeah, we, we, really. we didn't what know. <laughs> we, we've heard Einer Sawyer talk about the need for people like you, but we, we didn't know they really existed. Yeah, so really. We're, we're, we're sort of having a reckoning here. Um, <laughs> Um, but but on the other hand, I would imagine it's challenging. So it sounds like here you you have an basically your idea. This is pre cell phone, just before cell phones, right? So your idea is essentially stick a GPS thing on on rescue inhaler, and that whenever people would um uh, would, would use it, it would sort of ping, and you'd be able to say, oh okay, here's an outbreak. You'd be able to to do a better job, basically geolocalizing um uh, uh sort of sor- uh, environmental sources, environmental triggers. Yeah, exactly. This is 2006, so you know, well before, uh, well before the introduction of the iPhone. So we were, we were using. Um, I, I mean, God, I hope it, they weren't causing asthma attacks in and of themselves. They were just giant contraptions put on the side of inhalers, uh, and using, you know, like the Brew um, Nokia language. I think it's a Nokia language, uh, you know, to communicate data from those uh, devices back to uh, back to a server. So uh, it was. It was a, yeah, essentially like trying to make visible all these millions of inhaler events that were otherwise just being ignored by the top-down public health approaches, uh, uh, you know, that that have to exist but are just incomplete and could be complemented by, you know, a ground-up effort, so to speak. I remember this. I, I happen to remember seeing Asmopolis, which I think was the original incarnation of this company, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, not f- probably long after 2006. At a conference, and I remember talking, and I don't actually remember if it was to you or somebody else, but about the public health sort of focus of the company and thinking at the time, you know, how do you build a company around public health data? Uh, you know, note to self, probably can't. Um, so, but I think you also kind of, while that's, I think, still part of the mission of the company, that that is a really tough go. I mean, I think you you ended up finding your way having to sell it as a, you know, a solution to the medical world first, right? But is public health different from population health? Completely. What? Who's pay for, people who pay for it. And I, I think you're right, Lisa. Like, uh, I think what, what I realized relatively early on was that you, yeah, there was theoretically a path to, to valuable public health data layer here, but uh, how were you going to convince people to, to use it, right? And so you had to figure out a way... Uh, and this is where kind of the folks in Wisconsin were really helpful in steering me towards seeing that um, like a uh, similar kind of information gap was plaguing the way that physicians were taking care of patients and that patients, for their part, weren't aware that a lot more could be done to, uh, to control symptoms and help them participate you know, fully in the, the activities of daily life. So it, the, the business emerged from this idea that, well, let's make it valuable to a, to a person and to their physician, to that team. Um, and and then you know at the same time be accumulating information about what's happening across the community that uh, you know that feeds back onto that relationship also, uh, but you know teaches us hopefully ways in which we can address some of the the population risk factors that are otherwise causing symptoms or causing the development of asthma in the first place. 
But David, there's also, a, 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 if I'm hearing you right, there's also a, a, a subtle change here because your initial plan was that essentially by having the GPS, by you, you're going to be able to identify and help people avoid environmental triggers. But the evolution is to turning into more of a frequency thing to be able to help doctors identify which patients are, I mean, I remember writing about this for Forbes maybe five years ago, at least at the time, the idea was, as I recall, figuring out which patients are using their um, the rescue inhalers uh, with increased frequency. So it was about the frequency versus the sort of the, the location and that you're trying to figure out who is going to be on the way to getting an exacerbation. Uh, it, it's still it's still both. I, I mean, I think the emphasis changes and has changed because, well, background ownership of technology has changed in, in so many ways over that over the course of the company's history, right? Now you have uh, you, you people carrying around smartphones that would otherwise be duplicating a lot of the electronics that were on the device. And once we realized what we could connect one type of inhaler, we realized we could connect all the different medications that people were using, the daily medicines, the, the rescue medicines, and so on and so forth. And, um, and you know, and, and so doing kind of build just a much richer and um, more time uh, timely perspective of what's happening with an individual that could help a physician understand like the response to treatment, disease progression, you know, adherence and so on. So David, you know, I've, you've been a digital health pioneer for longer than the term digital health has really even existed. I think. I don't think you like that term, right? Yeah. I love that term. Right. Uh, and, uh, I really, I'm curious about that. You know, you've, you're like the, you know, the old grandfather guy in, in this field, by comparison to most, you were thinking about it and acting in it long before anybody else was paying attention. Certainly the pharma companies that are now your clients couldn't even be bothered to think about sensors 10 years ago, five years ago even. How has it been to be like, the, how, how, what is it like to be sort of the, you know, one of the wise old men in this field compared to, you know, the upstarts that we're seeing come in every day now? Um, I, I'm just so thankful to be a part of it. I think there's, there were like, a, I think of it as like, a race to the starting line, literally like the, the changes in what's available um, and how to make um, life for a, a person with asthma and their family better uh, just continue to multiply. And the real challenge here is to um, ensure that someone who's as, uh, as old as I am doesn't just think about replicating the, the pen and paper approaches of the past into kind of the digital interfaces that are, uh, you know, that, are, that exist now. Like how, what else can we do? What, what kind of different experience can we imagine for somebody with these conditions that, uh, you, you know, uh, exceeds kind of my own experience or my ability to, to come up with the ideas or, you know, the teams that, um, as a whole even. So there's uh, uh, like just a continue uh, uh, unfolding opportunity here and, um, and lots of contradictions too, things where we run into dead ends and um, thankfully, you know, just swarm over them and keep going. So... How does that, so a 10-year company, 10, 11-year company in this field, how does that go over with your investors? I mean, it took a long time to really get the traction. And how did you get your supporters, financial and otherwise, to be patient, to let the market evolve? Uh, well, the company started actually in 2010, uh, the end of 2010. So we're, we're roughly seven years along now. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the question still applies, right? It's, it's been a while I think digital health has obviously uh, blossomed or, um, you know, has, has grown in, in investment and activity. And there's all kinds of uh, new ways in which you can think about, um, you know, medicines or healthcare uh, with, with digital means. 
And um, but you know we've been fortunate to have amazing investors who see uh, you know the value kind of up and down the stack of what Propeller does. The the you know the clinical impact, the opportunity to think about uh, medicines in new ways, the opportunity to to try to support patient physician you know communication. And so uh, Ted Maidenberg from Social Capital, Gary Kurtzman from Safeguard, both amazing investors uh, in their ongoing encouragement and support for for what we're trying to accomplish. So what is it? What is the um? What is the key hurdle that you're looking at now? What is the thing that you? You know, it seems to me you're sort of at a, a, it feels like kind of like an inflection point where people sort of recognize for what you are. Companies are more open to experimenting with digital health. What is it going to take to sort of completely cross the chasm and sort of be a standard part of the armamentarium that physicians, that, that clinical researchers have in studying this condition? Well, I think the continued accumulation of evidence that it benefits individuals and their physicians is probably the most important, right? Uh, it has to it has to change the experience of of these of these diseases. It has to help people use drugs that we already have that are effective but are just poorly applied today. Um, I, I think people see opportunity both in the U.S. and in other markets. Um, and so, for a company like Propeller that's still relatively small, how do we support the different interests and the, the you know the different ideas about how digital can get applied and you know, how does it make sense in kind of a in an ambiguous healthcare market? So who in terms of like your customers, I remember even writing this, you know, I always thought that the ideal customer for for, for, for you would be someone like a, a generic uh, um, respiratory medicine com, com, rep, uh, generic company that sold respiratory medicines that could demonstrate where you would be able to demonstrate that the generic version of such and such thing, if utilized in the right way, um, and ideally with some kind of reminder maybe, where you could show that like a BID medicine in the right context is as effective as a QD medicine or something like that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of curious, are, are your main customers sort of the people who are making novel medicines? Are they the generic companies or are they the payers who are trying to evaluate what's really effective here? Uh, well, remember, um, and respiratory is still a, a branded market in, in the U.S. So we will see, I think, over the coming years, although there's been some equivocation here recently, we will see you know a, a move towards genericization um, and Propeller has partnered with a couple of generic uh, manufacturers, including one that's an investor, Hikma Pharma. Um, so, but to date, our customers have tended to be, you know, the brands and the franchises who who are still in, you know, dominant in the U.S. And, and what's the number one question? Like when people engage you, I mean, they engage you for all sorts of reasons. But if I'm, you know, GSK or AZ or whoever it is, and they're sort of, okay, we're going to work with you. Where in the organization do you fit in? Who do you work with, and what's the number one problem that question that you're answering for them? Uh, well, those are those are really big organizations, right? And as you know, they have different uh, different sides to them, both a, a clinical or an R and D side as well as a as a commercial one. We end up, for the most part, working with both organizations. And the clinical case, yeah, that's why the R and D side <laughs> is, is generally about accumulating evidence uh, of benefit for for a label in the future that would hopefully. Uh, you know, from their perspective, differentiate them from other competitive products in the market. Uh, on the commercial side, I think they're trying to accomplish a whole range of objectives, build, building better relationships with patients, trying to demonstrate that their medications, uh, you know, can can actually make a difference in outcomes um, and, and cost-effectively do that. So we're seeing, you know, all sorts of motivations, I guess, and some heterogeneity across the different pharma 
partners we have. So when you go into cell, you know, and I realize this may differ for health systems versus pharma, but it shouldn't, I guess. When you go into cell, how much of the conversation is about the cost savings you can create, you know, percentage-wise versus the clinical value of the solution? Um, well, co- I guess cost savings is always a question about, you know, for whom. There's there's a lot of interest, obviously, in the, in the payer-related expenditures, and that's a big part of the conversation. There's also a lot of household uh, expenditures uh, amongst people who have uncontrolled asthma, and so um, we we really try to think holistically about it. But I would say, for the most part, pharma is interested in uh, improved clinical outcomes, and you know, and then demonstrating that uh, there's a path through better use of their medicines, more adherence, and so on, um, you know, to to lower costs. Great, to the payers. thank you. So I think we're pretty much at our time here, but it's been so great to talk to you uh, and to catch up. It's so interesting seeing how your um, both your own story evolved and how it really seems sort of like a work in pro- you know a, um, a a real example of you've been evolving with digital health, really kind of leading it along um, and really trying to help. Um, apply both your epi and your sort of uh, technology acquired experience um, to sort of helping pharma companies and other stakeholders thoughtfully consider uh, how, how they can leverage this approach uh, to improve the care of patients. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, I think it is it is still evolving. We're we're just finishing up a big project we did in Louisville um, that's reading out some really interesting data about uh, about like pollutant thresholds, for example. So we're we're seeing kind of uh, you know, results from both the public health and the and the um, the clinical practice of of digital that I think hopefully are synergistic, right? Like that's kind of my still still my my dream that uh, that somehow those two things um, are going to be resolved to mean one thing, um, and that the digital is going to sort of be the catalyst that helps us at least make progress getting there. If that makes sense. So I know we're almost out of time, and Lisa may kill me, but I have one last quick 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 <laughs> question for you, which sure. is okay. You seem like you care too much about the epidemiology, about the science, about the actual underlying stuff. To, I, to, to, um, it, it seems like you, you, your cares are so authentic and your sort of curiosity is so genuine. I wonder if some VCs are like saying, "Whoa, whoa, we need, we need more of an asshole as a CEO." <laughs> how, how do, how have you, how have you managed that? It's, it's a hard problem, right? It's, it's a hard, it's a hard problem on two sides. One is. Uh, I'm a, I'm a field worker by training and by experience, right? I want to do like I want to use innovative methods, and I want to be out collecting data, and I want to be close to the problem. And um, in my role, uh, you know, I've had to learn and to um, obviously get um, experience about building a team that works on the problem, um, and hopefully building a culture that you know assembles people who care a lot about the same things that the company was started to to work on. But I don't get to do that anymore, so I have to. I have to and have found, uh, you know, it to be a regular and kind of um, compelling challenge to try to learn how to run a company and to try to how to turn, you know, my own skills and interests into something that's beneficial to the business. Well, anthropology is I'm uneven at that. Anthropology is closely tied to evolution studies. So I guess you've been uh, deep in it anyway, in one form or another. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, gosh, I really hope that um, your success continues. I mean, it's even an example of someone doing this where I would describe as sort of all the right reasons in a sense. And um, uh, with real insight and, and trying to use technology to solve important 
um, problems for patients and for communities. And um, really the best of luck with everything. It's been really inspiring speaking with you. Uh, thanks to you both. I really appreciate the chance to be on and, uh, and to talk with you today. Take care, David. All right. See you. Well, Lisa, so I thought that was very interesting, which is, of course, what I always say, but they are, you know, so many of our guests are interesting. But his perspective, I mean, how he got there. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, you know, we, we've, we've, we've seen so many slick entrepreneurs on our, on you know, just on the Valley, on our show. And he, he, he seems um, so non-slick and so, you know, authentic. He almost seems like he really cares so much. You know, I'm imagining how, I mean, it's great that he's been able to raise so much money, but, um, you know, like, d- you know, d- do you think he has enough of a killer instinct to ultimately be successful as uh, running a company? Well, you know, who knows? I don't know. I don't know him in that context. I don't know him more casually. But I think, you know, what's interesting about him is, uh, well, A, he's already made a successful company out of this. So obviously the answer is at least to a certain extent, yes. And B, I love that he's one of those guys that's taken a non-traditional path Absolutely. to the place he is. And I think there's so many examples of that, actually, but it's so undervalued. Oh, that's um, great. You know, in, in what, I, what I do, for instance, the pattern recognition that, you know, VCs are supposed to look for is quite different than medical anthropologists, right? And, um, and yet, you see folks like this um, who get to... Um, companies and great ideas from all different paths. And I think we have to ha- keep our minds open to that opportunity. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's why his story has, um, has it resonates so much and, um, and why it's so great to, 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 to see it moving forward in a way that it is. So really, really interesting stuff. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. You can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. Also, please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Rock on, Lisa. I'm off to do my drum solo. Drum solo.